Good morning. I love that song. I want to live like that. <clears throat> that could be the uh, theme of our message this morning as we uh, look at the parables of Jesus. Simple stories, daring truths. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. You may be wondering about this. Uh, this set is just wonderful. Brings out the child in me. Want to climb all over it. Or at least explore it. See if Rapunzel's up there. <clears throat> and this suit of armor, if you can, try to focus on me, not the uh, coat of mail. But <clears throat> this is uh, for Kingdom Rocks, our VBS week. It's going to be fantastic. They're going to be standing strong. And this, uh, it's a little, <laughs> a little different armor, but it does make you think of the armor of God that Paul encourages us to don, that is to put on, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. So, wonderful. I want to live like that. Well, let's look at the parable of the Good Samaritan this morning. And I'd like to begin reading it at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these... Do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This of all Jesus' parables has got to be the best known. Far and wide, whether you go to church or not, by hook or by crook, everyone it seems has heard of the Good Samaritan. The story 
is simple. Jesus emphasized the point. Be a good Samaritan when he said, go and do likewise. But the truth is daring. So daring, it speaks to the heart of salvation, to the heart of God, to the heart we are to have if we are to follow Jesus. We need to fully understand just how daring this parable is by situating the parable in the setting of the lawyer, the expert in the Word of God, the expert in the Torah, the lawyer's question to Jesus. And then I want to briefly situate it for us as well right here and now. So the situation then is open for us with the question of verse 25. The lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Essentially, he's asking, what do you believe, Jesus? What is your theology? I want to hear it for myself. I mean, he's really getting at the nub of it. What is it that you teach? What is your understanding, interpretation of Torah? And Torah shouldn't be just thought of, of you know, the Ten Commandments. It was really God's revelation, God's guiding revelation to his people. And so it's a profound question of which teachers, learned, highly respected teachers of that day, challenged God's people to live closer to God, live after God, follow God. And in this question, I'm sure he's heard Jesus teach. I'm sure he's heard of Jesus' reputation. So he wants to know, what do you really believe? What's the, so to speak, the very heartbeat of your teaching? And he frames it in terms of a personal question. If I follow you, Jesus, where are you going to lead me? Are you going to lead me to the most important thing I need to know? And that is life, life everlasting, which is life with God. And Jesus says, in effect, what's the law say? What's Torah say? How do you read it? And really, we should understand, recite it. They didn't have little pocket testaments that they opened up to. How do you understand it and how do you recite it? Recite it because what he calls him to is the Shema. That goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Shema is the very first word. It's a shorthand way of referring to the whole statement. Here is the word Shema. Hear. Hear, O Israel. The Shema is the way in which the Jew, the Judean, would identify with God. In fact, it says, Hear, O Israel. 
The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. So there are some very defining, distinctive markers that tell this is, this is who I am. I believe in one God and one God alone, and he is our God. But that's not the whole of it. It continues. Love the Lord your God. In other words, our God, our Lord is God. He is one. But then it turns around and says, love the Lord your God, specific. With all your heart, with all your being, with all your soul, and with your everything, it says in Hebrew, often captured by mind and strength. With all you are, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, interestingly, he adds on Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And many made this connection, many knowledgeable of the law, because it starts with the word love. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. When we went to the Holy Land with uh, Ray Vanderlaan, every morning, every morning we started our day uttering the Shema in Hebrew. And we went right from Deuteronomy 6, 5 to Leviticus 19, 18. And we would say it all in Hebrew and then we'd repeat it in English. That's what he does. Jesus was, was known for the great commandment. And it is Deuteronomy 6, 5 in 19:18. And this lawyer, in answer to the question, he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. Now, this was the yoke of the Jew. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but Jews would actually understand that in uttering the Shema, they were taking on the very yoke of God. They were joining themselves to God. Just like a yoke that is a harness, you put two oxen side by side under a yoke, the yoke keeps them together. The Shema is the yoke of God and his people. And they would even call it the yoke of the kingdom of God. It's interesting, the notion of a yoke was something that was used by rabbis, by distinguished teachers. The way that they would understand God's Torah, his law, his guiding revelation, was their yoke. If you followed the rabbi, you took on his yoke. In fact, it's been described this way. Uh, when you followed a rabbi, you were following him because you believed that rabbi's set of interpretations were the closest to what God intended. And when you followed that rabbi, you were taking up that rabbi's yoke. Reminds you of what Jesus said when he said, take my yoke. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, take my yoke upon you. Join yourself to me. My burden is light. And Jesus' yoke, I would contend and commend to you, is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting. Prior to Jesus, there were two great rabbis. In fact, 
It's off, they're often referred to as, so to speak, schools, because one rabbi, Shammai, uh, put the emphasis on the Lord is our God. Love the Lord your God. He put the emphasis there. Hillel put the emphasis on that second command, love your neighbor as yourself. They both held them in tension, but one put all the emphasis on love your God. And you know what it resulted in? A real strictness. Shammai is known for being kind of a hard egg, a hard liner, a legalist. Boy, you've got to live up to loving God. And of course, it narrows the scope of who qualifies and whether they really are able to love God. Hillel was known for being more merciful, more gracious. He put the emphasis on love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was probably not the first to connect love God and love neighbor, but it really was his yoke. It was his emphasis. It was the heartbeat of his ministry. And the disciples, they got that. They got that. And so, when the lawyer answers, Jesus says, you got it. You speak rightly. Now go and do it, and you shall live. That's pretty significant. That sets the situation of the parable. Let me situate it now for just a moment. A few years ago, I wrote an article for a local magazine publication. They wanted me to write about Christmas. And uh, in the article, it wasn't the thrust of the whole thing, but there was a point at which I wanted to emphasize that we care more about the birth of, of Jesus because of his death and resurrection. And to kind of drive home the point in contemporary language, I said, uh, even as Abraham Lincoln's log cabin birth meant more after he reached the White House. And if you think about it, um, Lincoln wasn't probably, uh, you know, the only to be born in a log cabin, although Jesus was virgin birth, but we're drawn to that, we understand that, we appreciate it, we're validated because of the cross and the resurrection. And in a similar sense, The White House helps to illumine how profound it is that Lincoln should become president out of such humble beginnings. My point, which I may have blurred rather than making, is that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus codifies his teaching. It doesn't trivialize it. Sometimes we focus on the cross and the resurrection of Christ as our Lord and Savior to elevate the grace And the fact that he died for me. It's all of grace. I'm saved by grace. But sometimes to the dismay of what was at the very heart of Jesus Christ. And that is what he was teaching here about loving God and neighbor. Love is everything. And I would contend that it's that very love that Jesus embodied that took him to that very cross. And I want to emphasize that for us because Paul got it. Peter got it. They all got it. In fact, you know, how often do we hear things about God's grace that drives his love? In other words, our appreciation 
of what Jesus was saying here on this occasion and on others when he emphasized love God and neighbor is magnified by the cross, magnified by the depth and limitless love of God demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. And we are his followers, and I'm saying we still need to take on his yoke of loving God and loving neighbor. I'm trying to, in effect, say, and I'm not trying to be eloquent about it, I'm just trying to say, folks, this is not just a little thing we're talking about. This is really essential stuff, and we really need to understand that. In the Old Testament, and the the profound thing for us today is that it was Jesus' yoke, but now in the light of the cross, the demonstration of the limitless love of God in giving him his one and only son for us, but now even more, the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. In other words, we're armed to love in a way that not even Jesus' hearers were armed to love. We have the same spirit that drove his ministry in us. And so it is a compelling thing for us to hear what he is saying to us now. And in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 31, 33, and Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, God said, I'm going to write my heart on your heart. I'm going to put my heart in your heart. In fact, to capture just some of the words, he says in Ezekiel, I'll remove your heart of stone. I'll just take it out and I'll replace it with a new heart. Now, that's a profound image of a spiritual transplant. And the idea that we have the heart of Jesus beating in us, which is a real metaphor because of the Holy Spirit being poured out on us. The Holy Spirit embodies the very person of Jesus Christ in us. And it is the distinctive thing as to why the church is called the body of Christ. And so it is that if God were to place his stethoscope on my chest, he would hear, would he not, the beating heart of Jesus in you and in me because of what God has done through the cross, the resurrection, the outpouring of his spirit. He has indeed fulfilled that prophetic thing that he was going to write his law, his word, his heart, Really, the law is just an expression of his heart. Write it on our hearts. Lucado, uh, Max Lucado in his latest book, Grace, kind of captured the, the power of this imagery when he draws the reader's attention to the idea of a new heart by telling the story of Tara Storch. Tara Storch lost her 13-year-old daughter when she was killed in a, in a skiing accident. And when Tara and her husband Todd chose to donate their daughter Taylor's organs to a needy patient, um, they ended up donating her heart, as it turned out, to Patricia Winters. Tara had only one request in the donation, she wanted to hear the heart of her daughter. And uh, Lucado writes, when they listened, he says, when the two mothers embraced, um, they embraced for a long time, and then Patricia, that's the daughter with the new heart, 
Patricia offered Tara and Todd, mother and father, a stethoscope. And when they listened to the healthy rhythm, Lucado asks, whose heart did they hear? Did they not hear the still beating heart of their daughter? It indwells a different body, but the heart is the heart of their child. And when God hears your heart, does not he hear the still beating heart of his son? Asks Lucado. That's what I want us to appreciate as we approach this parable. In the situation in which it was told, it was fraught with the most important question. Jesus, what is your heartbeat? What's your yoke? What's the way to salvation? What makes you tick? What's your theology out of, all about? If I follow you, where's it going to take me, Jesus? That's the situation now. Now when we hear the answer, we're living in a, in a like but even supercharged situation. Jesus has gone to the cross. This very heating, beating heart has taken him to the cross for us. He's risen from the dead and he's poured out his life on ours in the Holy Spirit. And so we need to hear his heart beating in this parable. Hear his heart beating in us because that's the difference. That's the profound nature of what is being impressed upon us as we read this behind all of that, the cross and more. Jesus tells a parable of unlimited love because it is the heartbeat of unlimited love that he tells. And it is in this parable the fact that love asks not for limits, only opportunity. And we want to look this morning at three things. There's no greater what, which is love God and neighbor. There's no greater how, which is love compassionately. And there's no greater who, love likewise. Let me just spend a couple of minutes running through these uh, three points that really are in focus here as Jesus tells uh, this parable. In no greater what, we saw that this is the yoke of Jesus. Love God, love your neighbor. And uh, this is the great command. It is how, listen, don't forget, don't lose sight of, this is the yoke for most of what it means to be a true follower of God, a true Judean. This is what unites his people. This is their yoke. They say, I am taking on the kingdom of God. And Jesus and this lawyer agree. In fact, he says to him, you're right. You're on target. This is a way, this is the way of life. It is the way to live. That's what he's emphasizing. But the lawyer, although he has the right, what we could call theology, the question becomes, does he have the right heart? 
And that is a challenge for us all, even as we follow Jesus today. It's, it's something that we're going to wrestle with if we take this all to heart. Because like that lawyer, we can agree in what makes Jesus tick, you know, what's at his heart, what his theology is. We can say, this is the right thing. But the question then is, is well, how far does this love go? How far are we going to take this thing? Are we going to get a little crazy about it? I mean, let's, let's, let's not go nuts here. That's really what the lawyer is asking. He's saying, Jesus, how far are we going to push this thing? Who is my neighbor? And so you can see that they agree, so to speak, in head. But Jesus is going to ask him, challenge him, and question him. You're going to agree with me in heart. And that's the question that we stand before today as well. That's really when the check engine light goes on for me. Um, And, you know, I'm a week ahead of you on this, so I've been thinking about this all week, thinking about Jesus' emphasis on love. I mean, really, read all of his parables. It's the commanding thing. Look at all the ways that he draws attention to this yoke. Love God, love neighbor. Listen to his sayings. There's nothing he isn't saying here in this parable that he doesn't say when he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's nothing he's saying here that is different than when he says, love your enemies. And we'll see that clearly in just a moment. There are so many ways Jesus' teaching, in other words, just the spirit of what what drives him, what energizes him. And maybe you might think it's out of bounds to talk about Jesus this way. But I find that when we start loving like he loves, it's going to energize us. It's going to drive us as well. And we will become captivated by the power of God's love as recipients But more importantly, as givers, as demonstrators, as exhibitors, as caring, as Jesus cared. Well, Paul got it. Peter got it. I mean, Paul makes reference to the yoke. Love God, love neighbor. In fact, he he even interprets it in Romans 13.10, he says, love does no wrong to its neighbor, which is pretty profound. shows you how practical love is. Love is a way to holiness. Because if you're loving, you're not going to do wrong to your neighbor. And I have to tell you, when I'm loving in my outlook, my perspective, my attitude, I can't, I can't sin. Or else I'm out of love all of a sudden. You know what I'm saying? Think of all the things that Jesus emphasized about the spirit of true religion, if you want to put it that way. Like when he says, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. But then he says, hey, you look on that woman the way you're tempted to look on her? (laughs) The spirit of this thing is captured in the love of God, that sacrificial love that elevates the other person to the level of yourself. 
And why would you do that? Because there's somebody bigger than me, and that's God. And so it all falls into place rather beautifully. Love God, love your neighbor, just as you would want your neighbor to love you. There's no greater what? There's no greater how. Love compassionately. Here's where Jesus draws our attention specifically to the parable as an answer. And what's powerful here to me is the lawyer, this man, by the way, who's like a seminary professor or some graduate professor of distinction, he wants to know what makes Jesus tick. But now that he's realized that we both have a very similar theology, if you will, he says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers him directly with the parable, but he answers in another way, indirectly, in that he talks to the lawyer by talking about somebody else. And you know what? He's doing that to us in this parable too. He's talking to John while he's talking about someone else. And he's drawing our attention to compassion. In verse 33, everything in the parable changes when a Samaritan shows up. Now, if you and I were sitting in the circle of those who could hear Jesus and his conversation with this lawyer, when he started telling this parable, and he says, we're going down, okay? He says, there was a priest going down. You go down from Jerusalem. In fact, here you go down elevation, literally 33 to 3,500 foot. Jerusalem was at 25 to 2,700 feet in elevation above sea level. Jericho was 820 feet below sea level. And you know what happens when water runs downhill? It erodes. And the the route from Jerusalem to Jericho is walking down through a ravine, 17 miles, winding down, an elevation drop of 33 to 3,500 feet. And there are little caves and outcroppings, and it was a dangerous road. People could attack you and get away with it down there. Many priests lived in Jericho. This has been established. And on this occasion, a man is robbed, left half for half dead. He's still alive, but he's, he's in dire straits. He's in a ditch in every sense of the word. And so he tells this parable, and lo and behold, going down, now that's important, because if the priest were going to serve in Jerusalem, in the temple, like it was his duty to do twice a year, if he was on his way up there, he might have an excuse. He might say, you know what, to honor the Lord, I can't come in contact with a dead person because then I've got to be unclean and go through a thorough seven-day cleansing. And I'm on my way to Bible study. You know, I've got to sing in the choir. Uh Uh-oh. That kind of gets us all, doesn't it? Sometimes we're so busy on our way to serve the Lord that uh, we just walk on by. But he was not going to serve the Lord. He was going downhill. That's an important distinction. And he sees, notice, everyone we encounter, the priest, 
the Levite, they see the man and they keep on going. And if we were sitting there listening, the next person we know is going to be a Judean. It's going to be an Israelite, a lay Israelite. There was a priest, a Levite, now a lay Israelite's going to come along. And no, it's a Samaritan. Samaritans were not just outcasts to Jews. They were enemies. Enemies. You've got to imagine. Pick out the enemy in your life. Maybe it's somebody you haven't met. Maybe they're just out there. You know, people out there in the world that contradict or threaten our lives, our lifestyle, what we hold precious. This Samaritan, just like all Samaritans, were people of suspect breeding, so they didn't have the breeding to be full-on Judeans. Secondly, their Torah, their first five books of the Bible, you know, Genesis through Deuteronomy, though that was suspect. It wasn't exactly up to speed. They had a different temple. Remember when Jesus met the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? They argued a little over the whole temple thing. In fact, the woman wanted to talk religion with Jesus, a way of kind of getting off the subject. Let's argue. <laughs> that happens a lot, you know. That's why we don't talk about religion or politics. But they had a different temple. And they were considered enemies. This is like a, this is like the Cold War for some of you. And so we're expecting a Judean, we get a Samaritan. And verse 33 says, he saw and he had compassion. He had compassion. Now, just to kind of put this in perspective, remember, we're talking about the heart, the yoke, you know? And this man has compassion. Just to put this a little bit in perspective, in Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, I think it's verse 7. I didn't put it down in my notes. He says to the Philippians, he says, um, God knows my heart. I have the very compassion of Jesus Christ. The word compassion is a really kind of ugly sounding word. It's splunkna. So he says, I have the splunkna of Jesus Christ. What is the splunkna? Well, some translate it the bowels, the guts. It's the viscera area. This is where the heart was located in antiquity. When you, you know, if you looked at somebody's idea of where the heart is, you know, right here, which isn't too far off. But that's where you feel things. That's where compassion is born. And this man had compassion. He got off his animal. He got down in the ditch. He smelled what the man smelled like. He had tears with the man's tears. He put his arms around him. He picked him up. He put him on his animal. He went out of his way to get him lodging. And you may have noticed he took care of him. And the next day, he left two denarii, which would be over two weeks' lodging, he really provided for this man, who we do not know his nationality, but whom we would expect is probably a Judean, an enemy loved. That's the what. And we might ask ourselves, 
How do we love God? If that question really matters to you, Jesus' answer is, we love God when we show that we care for the person in the ditch. Who is the person in the ditch? I mean, I understand how this works. Sure, if somebody's laying by the road and I see them and they're half dead, I don't care who they are. Mormon, Muslim, I don't care who they are. I'm going to help. I'm going to have compassion. But does that then become a limit? Does that become a definition of neighbor? Somebody who's half dead? But I ask you, of the people around us, there are people who have been robbed of hope, robbed of dignity, robbed of housing. And there's going to be a tendency for us to gauge, well, are they in that pickle because they put themselves there? Was this guy in the ditch because he shouldn't have gone down that road? I just want you to know, no matter how we slice it, in using the Samaritan to come compassionately to the need and meet this man's need so generously, Jesus is not just expanding the circle of who is our neighbor, he's demolishing it. There is no limit. And the proof is in the next point, the who. There is no greater who. I want you to notice that the kicker of this whole exchange is that the expert in the law is being asked by Jesus, and the asking is, that's too, I mean, he's basically requiring this man if he wants to live, right? He's requiring this man to emulate the Samaritan, his en enemy. The guy who has the wrong temple, who doesn't have the right pedigree, the guy who has the wrong scriptures, the guy who's got it all backwards, the guy who's wrong, 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 wrong. Jesus says, emulate him. He'll lead you to life. This is, this is, this is pungent stuff from Jesus. And it's really got me spinning. And I hope it has you spinning this next week. Where is the half-dead person in your life? Where is the person who's been robbed of hope, dignity, the needs that they have? Some of us live with them. We don't have to look far. And that's the power of this parable as well. It's not just hypothetical. It's in effect saying your neighbor is the person right around you, right in front of you. I'm, I'm looking at neighbors. I hope you're all getting along, by the way. When you get in the car and you're driving on the road and somebody is acting like a Samaritan, that's your neighbor, the people that you live beside, the people in the market. In fact, I'm just going through this week. It's like I got neighbors all around me. And some of the most powerful God moments of living out the gospel are those unexpected surprise kinds of God moments that pop up into our lives in the form of an inconvenience. Love is risky. That's why sometimes we don't get off our animal. 
We don't get down in the ditch. And we don't have compassion because we don't want to smell what they're going through. We don't want to sense what they're going through. We don't want to put ourselves in their place. We don't want to be neighbors. And Jesus says that's, that's the way to experience, to know, and to exhibit the love of God. Verse 36, Jesus reversed the lawyer's question. The question in verse 29 was, who is my neighbor? Listen to what Jesus reverses that question into. Who became a neighbor by showing love? Who became a neighbor? Don't you think about who they are, Jesus is saying. You think about who you are. Now just let that sink in. Because that points to our identity. I don't have all the answers. And if your mind works like mine, then you, you, you want to anticipate every situation. You kind of want to work it all out in advance. Or maybe you're real theological, and so you kind of wrestle with life's quandaries. And you think, maybe you read, you know, we live in such a connected age. You're reading something off the internet or reading something in the news. Or maybe you're tired of the news... Uh, turning into heroes, people like this or people like that. And so you're kind of fencing and shadow boxing with these issues. Well, I wouldn't have anything to do with them. Or, you know, I resent that kind of person. Or would I love in this situation or that situation? And that really can knock you off your feet. But here's what, something I want to suggest to us to help us. I've been thinking about the way Jesus turned that question around. There's no greater who. The question isn't, who are they? The question is, who am I? Now, that pulls everything into where I am. And it always where I am. Somebody in the last service said they got people living on this side of them, atheists, people behind them that have a whole different sexual orientation to life, people on... Those are the people. And when it gets hard, think about the lawyer and then think about your identity in Jesus Christ. The question isn't, who are they? The question is, who am I? How am I going to live? How am I going to love? Am I going to love the way he did? It really makes it bite size. Some of us are, we're defeated before we even get started because we're, we're wrestling with all these things or we want to make sure we're on the right side of the issue. But Jesus says, you know what? You want to make sure you're on the right side of the issue? Love. Love God and love your neighbor. And you'll always be on the right side of the issue. I don't think anybody is really going to get it wrong if you love people without limit eventually, it's going to lead back to Jesus and the love that he demonstrated in the cross because there's no love like that. But you'll only know it if you go the limit and go that extra mile. And then you'll know the heart of God in a way that will change your life forever. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us.
You know, I uh, recommended a book a couple weeks ago, Fearless, and I had a couple folks come up to me today and they said, oh, we loved it. And they talked about it just the way I talked about it. That made me feel good because I thought, you know, I don't want to be weird and I like to think that what I say resonates with others and they're going to experience what I experience. Well, that applies to us here now too because if God's been hammering me with his velvet hammer in grace, he's going to hammer you too. He loves you. And everything that we learn about loving here applies to us as well as others. I'm sure he's touched your heart in some way and in some ways, very practically. Maybe some things that make you want to shrink away. And he's calling you to trust him. And step out in faith and love in these practical, concrete ways that just won't let us get away. If you want to pray about that, something with respect to your own following Jesus, we invite you to come. Maybe to intercede in love, out of love, for the sake of love because you love someone else in your life, we invite you to come. So after I pray and say amen, if you'd like to come forward and pray with me, the elders, pastoral staff, we invite you to come. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for such love that we know firsthand. Thank you for such a beautiful purpose and goal to love others as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we praise you. And all of God's people said, God bless you.